Wizards of the Coast is offering the first chapter of Radiant Citadel for free. We're going to talk about what it's like to actually fight Vecna. I have two D&D tips today we're going to talk about. One is about whether or not you should reveal your NPC's archetype. The other one is about what a near-perfect 10 D&D game looks like. And we're going to go over questions from patrons. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show, you can help me out by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive access to Discord channels, and all different kinds of things. They also get to be part of the Patreon Q&A. You can find a link for becoming a patron in the show notes below. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much. So Wizards of the Coast released on D&D Beyond a free chapter of the Radiant Citadel. I think it is still available. It's not going to be available forever. And it's pretty cool. So I was reading through it. It is all about what the Radiant... It's it's all about the main location for the Radiant Citadel, the hub around which all of these adventures are going to take place. Journey to the Radiant Citadel is a new book of a bunch of different adventures. I think it's like 14 adventures that go all, all the way up to 14th level. Independent adventures, but all surrounding this one central location called the Radiant Citadel. And the free chapter describes the, the entire Radiant Citadel. It offers the map of the location and descriptions of all of the places there. It talks about how the whole place works, talks about all of these different civilizations that have all kind of gotten together here. They all have representation. It is a very very idealistic society. It's got all kinds of different things going on that make it a, you know, a very utopian, a very utopian look at society that different, different groups. There's certainly conflicts between different groups, but they all have to manage to deal with it or, or trade can break down. I think they said that any member of the core council can shut trade down for everybody. So you really have to work well together in order for the place to operate. Yeah. 27, a collaboration of 27 great civilizations, right? So they're clearly trying to break away from a lot of fantasy tropes, particularly, particularly what is it called? The colonialist tropes of like, Hey, we have one advanced society that's going to go and take all of this stuff from quote unquote, less advanced societies. In this case, it is like, no, all of the societies are bringing their cultures under their purview to this one location. So yeah, really neat. I mean, you know, again, it's really nice to get it for free, but I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this product. I'm, you know, first of all, it's very, very fantastic, right? It is certainly high fantasy and I, I dig that, right? And I think it's, it's, it's well beyond just typical medieval European European style. And it's nice because like you got if you want that, you got the Forgotten Realms, right? Forgotten Realms is your kind of traditional European style fantasy. But then over here you've got like, hey, here's this crazy city that exists inside of the ethereal plane with a huge crystal in it and these weird entities and this council and it's connect and these ships, like these crystalline ships that take you to and from the 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 host worlds, right, of these different places. And what I th- I actually think reading this and kind of and thinking about how it's going to operate, I think this will be a fantastic adventurers league campaign. And and I think the same way that Candlekeep Mysteries was a good was a good a good adventures league thing. And the reason why is that it is built to be sort of single session adventures, I think, right? I don't know if every one of these adventures is intended to be done in in like a 4-hour period. I think that because they are independent adventures that are all kind of built around one central theme. You still have this idea that you're in one place doing one thing, but that the adventures expand out in lots of different areas and it's and it's perfect for adventures league. I don't play a lot of adventures league these days because I'm just too busy, but my wife does. And and she was talking about Candlekeep Mystery. So she played Candlekeep Mystery, she liked that a lot. She played in the Rhyme of the Frostmaiden adventures. And the problem with those is like they're they're often in three episodes. There's like three different sessions that you have to play. And if you only play one or two of them, you're going to miss 
the the main arc right there was one where you're like hunting this big creature right and you don't fight the creature until the very end of the third which means if you only play the first two you never get to see it she said the same thing happened when she played Strixhaven. She liked the environment of Strixhaven a lot. She thought that was a lot of fun. But it's like if you miss any of them, there's all of these hooks that have to happen from one adventure to the other. And people don't run them. So like you're going to miss out. If you miss one, if you didn't show up for one virtual weekend to play it, you're out of luck. Like, And there's a whole section of the adventure that goes away. It feels like with Radiant Citadel, because they're independent adventures, you're, you're not going to miss anything if you don't play one, right? So I'm, I'm excited to see how this plays out for Adventures League. I'm looking forward to seeing this adventure come out. Out, or this this book of adventures come out it's it's exciting and it was cool to be able to read the first chapter and and see what this whole place is like and see how it operates and i really dig it check it out i if it's still available you might be able to pick it up on dnd beyond and pick up this first chapter for free if not i'm sure on dnd beyond you'll be able to pick up the whole book when it comes out which i think is coming out in about two or three weeks i think about two or three weeks where it's coming out the last two shows the last two dnd talk shows that i that i that i did i talked about the vecna stat block i gave a, criti- a critique of the stat block originally and kind of talked about how i felt about it I felt like eh, i just don't think it's doing enough damage right and i talked about my fix which is uh flight of the damned should instead of instead of doing 36 damage should just drop people to zero because why not have it as hard as a as a as a, a banshee right banshee's cr4 this guy's cr26 go ahead and give him a banshee move give him the same move a banshee but i had a friend of mine who his group when they were their experienced dnd players they they certainly know how to play i know i know a bunch of them and they ran the adventure and they said it took forever they said it was like an eight hour adventure they thought it was going to take four hours and it ended up taking like eight hours and they said the final battle was like a three-hour battle and i think it was just against vecna and it was five 20th level characters and they tpk'd so it feels like if you run vecna right vecna can tpk a 20th level group which is pretty good right and that was with base stats so maybe i was wrong it's quite possible i was wrong and the vecna stat block is just as strong as it needs to be if you can if you can tpk a group of 20th level characters that should at least be a strong challenge for a 20th level group depending on the group and i and you can certainly like monkey around with other things but i think that maybe they are as maybe maybe vecna is as strong as he needs to be without having to make any modifications to it so i thought that was interesting they said that my, my friend jerry who who talked about it said that uh, the big one was him teleporting and being able to get hit 80 hit points back that they could just never do enough damage and if you think about it, it makes sense like you're going to spike a lot of damage up front and if you can't get out that 270 hit points to beat him then he's going to start every turn getting 80 hit points back and if you don't even do 80 in a round if you're like doing some prep and he's zipping around he's going to get more than 80 because he's going to be able to do it a couple of times over a couple of rounds so i think he said it went like seven or eight rounds right so i yeah so and and one of the, i am i am lord seven says i think that the flavor of being more of a skirmisher doesn't feel like vecna i still agree with that and my friend did say yeah the issue was him teleporting constantly right that the having all those reactions being able to counterspell people and being able to to teleport whenever he was hit by an attack meant they could never get on top of him which is good from escape standpoint the question is is that what an arch lich looks like I, I just don't see arch liches zipping around like a skirmisher so it's really funny because he's actually more like an assassin right he's more like this rogue running around stabbing with a dagger than he is more like an arch lich throwing massive amounts of spells and destroying everybody so so that you know that critique still kind of exists if you ask me but but as far as his danger goes he's a very he's it, it sounds like he's a pretty dangerous thing and you know better than me you know being a a a couch quarterback on this 
my friend Jerry actually got to play against him and said, yeah, he was a TPK. I think that dominate monster is also an important one that you got to throw that dominate monster around that, that could matter. It's a good thing. He doesn't have improved invisibility, but he's an harsh lich, wouldn't he? Cause improved invisibility on the lich is really, really nasty. Cause he can't target with anything. Anyway, I thought that was some, that was some feedback that I wanted to give up because it's like, I actually have a friend who actually experienced fighting him and here's what it was like. And it was a TPK, which went against what I thought, which is, I don't think he's going to TPK anybody. Cause I don't think he did enough damage, but the answer is no, he will. It just takes eight rounds and, and four hours. So yeah, interesting stuff. So I had a couple of different topics for, for on, on the thoughts of dungeon mastering. Right. And what I like to do on this show is when I'm pondering an idea, I like to talk about on this show. I don't have a solid answer yet, but I like to think about it and I like to talk about it and I like to get people's feedback on this. So as I talk, talk about these and if you have feedback, please feel free to leave a comment or, or, or if you're on Twitch, you can, we can talk about it right now. And one of them is about in, revealing NPC archetypes. And this happened in my, this happened in my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game. One of, one of my tricks, one of the tricks that I use as a, as a lazy DM is instead of rolling a bunch of personality traits or spending a lot of time trying to think about what an NPC is like, I just pick a character from fiction and I say, I'm going to, I'm going to use this character from, from, from this show or from this book or from whatever. And I just use their personality directly. And in my witch-like game, I have been using these things called Dreadful Incursions, which is where the domains of dread have been bleeding into Prismere, into the world of Witchlight. And as the characters in my last session were jumping from a domain of dread that they were in, this big haunted house, the house of Griffin Hill, and jumping back into Yon, the location in Prismere, they were intercepted. And they were intercepted by a, an entity who speaks for the dark powers. If you're familiar with Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, you know that the domains of dread are like prison cells for entities known as dark lords. The wardens of those prison cells are these entities known as dark powers that nobody knows what they look like. Nobody knows exactly what their motivation is. They are clearly not nice beings. They're not gods. They're not physical entities, probably, but they're not nice beings, right? And so I said, wouldn't it be cool if they had a a speaker they had a, a herald a herald of the dark the dark powers right wouldn't it be cool to have a herald of the dark powers and i was like who would make a good herald for the dark powers and i was like how about mr morden from babylon 5 like i thought mr morden from babylon 5 would make an excellent dark power right so i created where is he there he is morden right and i said uh He'd be great, right? So they would show up on this like floating earth mode in the middle of the of the plains. They would look, you know, they would they would look out and see all of the spheres. They could see it happening. They could see the domains of dread smashing into Prismere. They could see it occurring. They could physically witness it all. And sitting there on this floating earth mode, drinking tea, is this guy, Mr. Morden. If you're not familiar with Babylon 5, Mr. Morden was a really great villain and herald for this super terrible entity known as the shadow right which are one of the main villains maybe the main villain in babylon 5 and he was like manipulating things behind the scenes and he was just such a smarmy ass right you just hated the guy and look at him like you look at his hair you don't even you know it's a slick back hair and i was like i'm using this guy right and it was perfect right and i had him talking about it 
and I showed a picture of him and I showed this picture and everybody in the group was like, oh, that's Mr. Morden from Babylon 5, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's Mr. Morden from Babylon 5. And the question I had, I have, I have played with this idea of that when you pick an archetype for your character, do you want to reveal the archetype to the players or do you want to hang on to it, right? And I asked like my, I asked my wife, I was like, how did you feel about that? Would it have been better if I, I could have changed his name and not made it Morden and made it something else. And I could have described him and used Morden, but does it help you to really solidify this NPC in your mind? If you know the exact archetype that I'm using, if I say this is Mr. Morden from Babylon five, right. And they go, Oh, sure. I know. I hate this guy. Right. You know, like you hate him and you haven't even talked to him yet. Right. Or are you better keeping that behind the screen and you use, you can use the archetype, but you get to switch it, right? You change the name, you change some other mannerisms, maybe you change their gender and, and now no one will be able to recognize it, right? No one will be able to figure it out. This is like that thing where like, if you tap out, you know, if you tap out the beat to a song, you are sure that other people will be able to recognize what song you're tapping out. And the reality is they have no idea. They can't figure it out. So likewise, if you say, I'm just going to take again, my favorite Al Swearingen from Deadwood and I am, or let's say Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. I'm going to have an, an NPC as an assassin. He's really dangerous. He's a complete psychopath. And I'm going to base him on Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men, but I'm going to make it a woman. And now I've got this really like, you know, this woman who's walking around. She's very, you know, she, she's a murderer. She, you know, believes in chaos. You know, no one would recognize, oh, that's Anton Chigurh. Only it's a woman, right? Not, yeah, only I would know that, right? So I'm not decided yet. I've had, I know other people that have said that it's better to keep the archetype to yourself. And I know then some people said, no, it's, it's kind of fun to just say, here's who they are. Right. And I'm torn on it. I don't know yet. So I think what I would offer up is it's a fun experiment. Try it. Take some, we, we, this is one of these like small experiments that DMs can run. And I think running small experiments is a fantastic way to be a great DM. I think that just, you know, for one NPC, try it out. Like pick an NPC and say, this is this guy. This is the, you know, you go into an inn and here's this guy with this big handlebar mustache. He's like, oh, hello friends. And he's exactly the dude from Lord of the Rings. He's the bartender from Prancing Pony in Lord of the Rings. And they go, oh yeah, with the hat. And the guy is like, he's like afraid. Yeah, that guy, right? Is that dude. And then another one, do the same thing, only don't tell them. Right. Say, you know, pick and pick another NPC and say there's this shadowy guy in the corner. He's got his hood pulled up. She pulls back her hood, shows that she's a woman and she's, you know, looking at you. And she's like, boy, you guys are, you know, showing off everything that you shouldn't be showing off. And, and you don't say, oh, by the way, that's Strider. Right. <laughs> it's Strider, but it's a woman. You don't have to do that. Right. You don't, you know, do you show it or do you not? And I think it'd be fun. Do a sample. Try both. Do a control group. Right. You control a group and a test group. Your control group is you don't tell them. Your test group is you tell them. And do the players resonate more with the NPCs that you whose archetype you share compared to those with the archetype you don't? I, I bet you I'm, I would expect it doesn't matter too much. I bet you it doesn't matter too much either way. I think it, you can, you can, some cases you can do it. In some cases you, 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 you don't have to do it. I don't, I, I, I actually, after all this talk and all this chatter, I bet it doesn't matter too much, but I'm curious. I'm curious. So if you've tried this, I would love to hear how it worked out. If you share, do you share the archetypes of your NPCs in your game? If you do, what kind of reaction do you get? Have you ever tried some and not others? And, and do you find that they resonate more? Does it break them out of the immersion of the game? If they know that you just stole a character from a whole other piece of fiction and threw it in there. Right. Does that change how how they think of the game? I don't know. 
So yeah, so I think that 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 to me was kind of an interesting an interesting thought and an interesting experiment. And Morden in my game is now definitely a solid thing. He probably won't show up for a while, but he's definitely going to show up for a while. He's definitely going to show up again. Another thought occurred to me while as same same game. So I was I was talking about it, and I, I like to I like to to query my wife. My wife plays in my Wednesday games, and I always like to hound her about like, hey, on a scale of one to ten, how much did you enjoy the game? And she's like, I hate it when you do that. I'm like, I know. And she's like, at seven. I'm like, okay, seven's cool. So I was trying to think about like, what is a, what is a near perfect 10 D&D game look like? You know, like if we are, uh, if, if we think about a game that we've played, that we've run, and we think about like, that was, that was a near perfect 10. I go with near perfect 10 because a perfect 10, like everyone, you know, a lot of people are really hard on themselves and a lot of people are hard on everything around them. And uh, I actually had a friend of mine who did it like a, 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 a doctorate on this that found that like with a Likert scale where you have like the one to five scale or the zero to five scales on things that for people to go to four to five, it, it has to be exponentially better, right? That going, going from like three to four, the amount of extra benefit that it has to have to go to four to five is exponential, right? Which means that like the difference between a nine and a 10 in our D&D games is almost like more than twice as good right? Like it really has to be way better to get to a 10. So to me, the near perfect 10 is a better thing to aim for. It doesn't, you know, perfect 10s are almost going to be impossible, but a near perfect 10, like how good, you know, when, when it's really, really good, maybe not perfect, but really good session. What does that look like? Like, what are the things that you identify that make it a really good session? And I asked this on Twitter. I haven't done a deep analysis of all of the answers yet. I like to take the answers to Twitter and then do a big thing. But I did see a lot of common, a lot of common thoughts and a lot of common trends about what sort of makes a near perfect 10 D&D game. And then the question is, are those things serendipitous? Are they things you can plan for? You know, how, and, then, and then the question that I ask is like, I, I think the answer is that a lot of times a near perfect 10 game has to have a lot of things that just happen right. And, and sometimes some of them, many of them you can't control, but you can still build an environment for a near perfect 10 game, right? You can still build a, you can still set the, set the table right so that a near perfect 10 game can happen, right? And I think that that's dissecting this question and thinking about the details of this can, I, I think, probably lead us to some practical, some practical advice on this. So, like a few examples that people brought up are like the the, the player are all engaged most of the time. I don't think, again, the difference between near perfect and perfect ten is like if you have five players and they are they are on and they're all paying attention to the game the whole time, they're all into it, they're all drawn in, they're all paying attention to what other characters are doing, they're never thinking about their phone, they're never thinking about any any email they got or or checking, you know, checking in the, the gram, right? That'd be great. But you know, getting that all the time, that's pretty hard to do. I'm gonna have it. So I think that, you know, having your players engaged with the game most of the time. Is, is is one criteria of, of a near-perfect game. You want players to be enjoying enjoying the game. Another one that a lot of people said is that everyone walks away excited about what happened and excited for what is going to happen, right? Right, players, players when the game is over, they're, they're excited about what happened. They, they thought it was awesome. They were really excited and they're eager to play again. I think that that is a that is a good sign of a near perfect game, right? If people walk away and they're like, "Well, I'm glad that's over," right? Or, "Man, I'm tired. I want to go to bed." 
I think when they're like, ooh, it ended at a good spot. And I think that's where you can do kind of cliffhanger endings, right? Like having en- ending ending in a situation where you're leaving stuff on the table, where you're, where you're not fully. I, I, I'm a fan of that approach. I know that it has the risk of like what happens when another player misses the next session, right? And that sucks. But the strength of it is really there too. And I'll tell you, like going over on time, this is where I think going under on time is better than going over. Ending your session a little early is way better than ending your session late. So if you find yourself, I'm going to offer, you know, offer thought. If you find yourself continually ending your sessions too late, try try it the other way. Try ending early and see how people feel about it. But generally, I bet you people are going to, people are going to be more excited when you leave things on the table. Sunjammer says, if you get a no, when you say, and that's where we leave it tonight. And I almost always do. I always, always get people going, oh, right. And that's, I think that's really good. I think that's a, that's a strong, that's a strong sign. I think that the character in a, in a near perfect 10 game, the characters have options, meaningful options and the agency to make those choices. Right. I think that, I think that that is a sign when, when you offer options to characters and they have multiple paths, is that the sign of a perfect 10 game? That's a sign of a good game. I think probably the idea that they have agency, right? The characters have agency to make meaningful choices. I think that's stronger. That's, that's better. Right. And again, these are some of this I got from like reading tweets and talking to people about it. So it's not all just Mike Shea's big ideas. These, these ideas are things that I had seen, but I'm kind of articulating into pieces. So that's a big one. The other one is that every character had an opportunity to shine both mechanically and in the story. So during a session, was there a time where somebody really got to use the cool thing that they like to use from a mechanic standpoint? And was there an opportunity for them to have a meaningful, a meaningful interaction in the story right and that's tough to do right that's because you know five six players sometimes like over a session it's hard to do both of those right but i think that's really where when we're doing like our prep we can say like you know what's a cool thing that this that this character likes to do and how do i make sure they have the opportunity to do it and what's something from their story that it can draw into the game this is why we have review the characters as the number one thing that we the first step that we take when we do return when we do the steps from return of the lazy dungeon master is figuring figuring that out what else makes like a perfect 10 game if you think back to games that you've either run or played in particularly games you played in I'm really interested in games that you played in that you really feel like were 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 perfect were perfect games. I think pacing, right? The pacing the pacing of the game was spot on. Relaxed at the parts where it should be relaxed and and fast when it should be fast. You know, I think that that, you know, I think that's a good sign. When I think back to games, the game ended on time. That's a big one for me. Like when they if they go long, I'm like how long is this game going to go? Yeah, I see cool cinematic moments in combat and out, or outside of it. The elements are surprising to everyone at the table. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's one. When the game, that's a big one. When the game or the story and direction of the game goes in an interesting direction, no one could have predicted. This is going on continually in my Numenera game. I would say the game where we jumped 14 months in the future was a near perfect 10 game. That was one of the most exciting RPG games I've ever run, right? And it was because crazy stuff happened. The same is true last week. I think last week was a near perfect 10 game because things happened. I had no, I, I just was laying these, I literally, you know, almost literally laying out nuclear bombs and letting them see what they're going to do with them. They're going to hit them with a hammer and they kind of did. 
So I think that 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 definitely is a good one. That the, when the story and the direction of the game, there are times I was trying to figure out how to articulate this, but there are times where like the the sort of yes and improvisation of the game, going back and forth between the player and the DMs, the DM and the players, and back and forth, and the story was like moving in this direction that was fun and funny, and people were into it, and it wasn't like you know about mechanics or ad, being in an advantageous situation nobody was frustrated with it even though the hard things were happening and it's hard to kind of describe what that's like when you really feel the flow of the of the improv right and it's only happened to me a few times like i do a lot of improv in my games but those times where i feel like wow the improv is way better than anything that we could have come up with independently that's you know that's a hard thing to to face to to, to do and it's i don't know if it's a sign of a perfect end game because it's only usually one little moment you know so uh a, a juicer says adding the last point the whole group is having a shared imaginative experience that matches that of the dm and the other players i don't know how important that is like I don't know how much, how important it is, unless, unless the, the differences in people's imaginations of the world are clashing with one another in the game. If everybody has sort of a different idea of what a character looks like, I think that's okay, right? I think it's all right as long as people, as long as the one that's going on in their head matches enough of what's going on in the others that there isn't a collision, there, there, isn't, there isn't a break in immersion, but I think it's okay if people have sort of a different view of the situation that's going on. I think, I think it can be. I did bring up the idea that like all the three pillars are represented. And I don't know how important that is. Because I've heard people say, I had a perfect 10 session. All we did was role play, right? All we did was, was we didn't roll a die. I've had a perfect game. We never rolled a die. And who am I to say that that wasn't a perfect game? right or a near perfect game they said it was and that's the idea no one gets to tell you what a near perfect game is only you do right these are i'm not telling you what a near perfect game is your criteria can be completely different than mine and you could look at examples of games that you've played that you would consider to be a near perfect 10 that didn't have these things or had different things and that you know you're right you're you you are correct you you get to decide no one gets to tell you what a near perfect 10 game was right which also means that sometimes your players some will say wow that was a near perfect 10 game and everyone's like i hated it right that's that's possible too right and hopefully you don't have a lot of those i'm sure it happens right i I know that there are some players where they're like i want big crunchy tactical combat most of the time i really don't care about the story i want to see my character do cool mechanical things and then someone else is like i'm so bored right because like i miss all the time and my character's not really optimized it's not very fun and then you get the opposite, which is like, I would just want to go explore this town and talk to people and find out like what the history of this place. And then and the, and the character is like, I just want to hit something with a sword. So different players are looking for different things. And one, one person's perfect end game is going to be someone else's most miserable game. But hopefully with the right group of players, with the, you know, a general feeling that you, you know, you want most people to feel like, you know, that was a real perfect end game. So that's, that can be really tricky. But yeah, the main thing is like, I think, I think an important, an important piece to this, I guess the, 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 the thought I would offer, the advice I would offer is that it's one thing. I think it's very useful to hear what other people have to say. It's probably useful to hear what I have to say about what makes a perfect 10 game or near perfect 10 game. But really you're going to have to make up your own list, right? And you can sit down and make up your own list of what, what to you, both in games you played in, games you saw, what you've heard, take all of these experiences, take everything, both games you've run, games you've played in, things you've heard from everybody else, 
and make your list of like what are the things that make a near perfect 10 game what are the things that that really make a game like if you check these off like when i think about games i've run and i've checked these off that those games were the some of the best games i ever played make that list and then the question is now how do you set up an environment when you're doing your prep because we're you know we're talking to dms here right when you're doing your prep how do you set things up to to help with this as much as possible right and i think there are things you can do when we talk about every character having an opportunity to shine mechanically and in the story i think during our prep we can really think about that what makes this character shine from a mechanic standpoint how do i show that off what are the things that this character really digs or the player really digs from a story perspective how do i tie that in and then making you know adding it to your secrets and clues adding it to your other sections of your prep setting that up making players walking away excited by what happened and excited for the game to come i think you can do that a lot of time by ending on a cliffhanger right and end at an exciting point. You know, take the pacing up and then cut it off. And then, oh, no, I want to keep going. Yeah, that gets people excited. Keeping people engaged a lot of time is, is calling on them or keep, keeping that note. Hey, you know, talking, addressing the characters. Don't throw questions out there and hope somebody grabs them. Pick a character. Say, what do you think of this? Right? How do you, what choice do you think the character should make? Right? And look for the ones that haven't been engaging that often and ask them. Right? And, and don't shame them when they're like, oh, I was playing I was playing Vampire Survivor, right? And you're like, that's okay. You know, let me rephrase where things are so you know what's going on and then, and then hit it up. I often have to do that. And I don't think it's a big deal, especially when online games. In online games, many times I have to reiterate where the current situation is. I just assume they haven't been paying attention. And I reiterate this situation and give them a chance to make a choice. Pacing, of course, we talk about pacing all the time. Like, how do you, how do, you, do, how do, you do pacing, right? And, 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 and I think the idea of setting up situations, right? I, I, you know, I, I harp on the same things because they, they seem to work really well for me. Setting up situations and letting the players navigate those situations is that really interesting thing about working with improv. You don't prep solutions. You prep situations and you let the characters come up with solutions and you work with them to try to find solutions. If you can think of some, you might offer them up if they're having trouble with it. But you don't, you don't build with solutions in mind, right? You build with situations that are exciting and then letting them navigate this those situations so i think it is a to me it feels like a valuable exercise I, it was sort of a different take on like how how what do you think of the game it was like well what in general what makes our best games what are the things that that you know make the best one and how do we kind of establish our prep around some of the things to not ensure that we always will have one because you're not going to right you can't always be you know the majority of your games are not going to be above average right so for you, right? Mathematically, I think it's possible. But, you know, how do we set the, how do we establish things to have the best opportunities to have these, these amazing games? So, so I've been thinking about a lot of that. I'll probably think more about it and I will probably articulate this more into an article or a video or both or something like that. But I'm very curious. If you have thoughts, I would love to hear your thoughts about what makes a near perfect 10 dnd game what are examples of near perfect 10 dnd games and why what are your own lists right if you spend the time spend 10 minutes thinking about the things that in your games that you played in and as you've run what are the you know what are five things that have made those games near perfect 10s and leave it in the comments i'd love to hear them i'm very very excited to hear that that kind of stuff let's go through our Patreon questions. So every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a thread asking for questions. I answer every question on the Patreon Q&A directly, but I also take some of them and bring them on here onto the talk show. And sometimes I turn them into articles and videos for other things as well. 
So let's jump right into our questions. Frank says, I feel like when combat starts that everyone gets into fight mode and disregards all other options. Creativity goes out the window after initiative is rolled. How can I get players back into a creative mindset and out of a combat mindset after the fight starts? I believe that this is a common a common problem. I think that it's very easy. And I remember hearing that like, you know, the minute you say roll for initiative, it's this smash cut between a free flowing RPG and a board game, right? There's that, there's that, 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 that you can have that feeling. And there's a few things that I, I, I have done that, that have worked well for me and that I've heard from, from other people as well. And so you know, one question is, are you playing on a grid or are you playing theater of the mind? And I think you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying theater of the mind is the cure for this, but I'll tell you, I feel like when you're running battles in theater of the mind, more creative options can come up from certain players, right? Because they, they don't feel bound by what they directly have in front of them. And I know that the minute you put down a grid and miniatures in a map, people start thinking about combat and they start thinking about their moves and they think about it and it, be, it does kind of become a board game right? It kind of becomes a board game. You got tokens, you got movements, you've got very specific things, and they're not really thinking about a lot of the details. So, so that can be hard, but you know, that, that it's not saying that, that you have to play theater of the mind or that anytime you use the grid, it's not going to work, but it's worth keeping that in mind. And it means that if you are playing on a grid and stuff like that, there, you need to do something else to break them outside of that grid, right? I, I talked, I have an article it wasn't well loved called tyranny of the grid. And it talks about how our imaginations disappear the minute we stick everything inside of tiny little boxes. Right. I know. Don't yell at me. And I'm not saying, you're, Oh, if you're using a grid, you're doing it wrong. I use the grid all the time. Right. I use it often. I, I use a variety of different tools to run combat. And I can tell you that I've seen more ingenuity come from theater of the mind combat than I have from gridded combat. I think in general, but I've seen some, some definitely some ingenuity. So some other things is that you can offer options, right? This is one of those where like tell don't show, right? If, if, if characters have options that are outside of their character sheet and they're like, why aren't they doing it? Tell them, right? Tell them that they're there. By the way, there's a big chandelier swinging back and forth in the bar up above you, right? It's possible you could grab onto that and do some swinging across the, the bar, right? Tell them about the things that they might not recognize. Tell them about like, you know, you notice that giant big pile of dried wood behind the goblins, right? Just asking to be set on fire. Describe describe the things that are there. You can also write down notable features. This is something that I picked up from Fate, from Fate Accelerated and now Fate Condensed, which is kind of zones, right? That Or, or features, and they call them aspects in Fate. But basically, if you have a battle, instead of just having drawn terrain or whatever like that, you could actually say like, you know, pit filled with razor sharp rocks and you write it out on an index card or you and your VTT, if you have a way of, of adding like a sticky note, like Albert Rodeo, you could put sticky notes in there, right? Write it out and say like, you know, big pit with spike rots and put it there so that they they can see what these other features are. It's almost like imagine having character abilities that were actually location abilities so that your character sheet has like i can do these five moves but then you might have these other moves that are based on the location fate that's what kind of fate does right 
So write those down. What are those things? Tipping over big barrels of oil, you know, or, you know, big canyons filled with spider webs, whatever your terrain is, whatever feature of the battle is that matters and that can be used by them that's outside of their character sheet, write it down and, and show it to them. That can be that can be a big one. The other one is staying as much in the fiction of the world as you can in your descriptions and in in your questions from the players, right? And then this breaks them out of their sheet. So if you don't, if you say like, you know, in, instead of saying like there's the ogre is right here, it's going to attack you with a club. It rolls a plus 18 to hit and it does 12 damage. Let's talk about what it's like. Say that the or, ogre roars like he's, he's stumbling around. He's not the most dexterous individual you've ever seen. Right. And he comes swinging at you with his big spike club. You know, you roll, he rolls a 14. It whirls over your head. You manage to duck right under it and he sticks it in a nearby tree and he's wiggling into that tree. He's like trying to tear it free right you can you know what do you want to do right and then and then when they say something like i am attack you know or i you know i rolled a 16 to hit you say oh well what were you doing before you you know before you get into mechanics what are you doing well i'm going to take my bow and i'm going to shoot it i'm like okay you also notice you want to shoot him with a bow you notice there's a hornet's nest hanging over the top of that ogre right from that tree right and oh yeah and i'm like you know just saying right can I shoot it? Yeah, you can certainly try. In fact, it's probably easier hitting the hornet's nest than it is hitting the ogre. You're like, I want to roll. You hit it. The hornet's nest falls on his head. It sticks on his head. Hornets are stinging him in the face and he's freaking out. You have advantage on the next attacks until the beginning of his next turn, right? So you can offer those things and, and you can just ask them to describe their intentions. Like, what are, you, what are you trying to do in the world? And then you might say like, well, what does that look like? You know, and, and I'm a big fan of like describing killing blows. Like, what does it look like when you finish this guy off or do you kill him, right? Uh, but other things, like if they're casting a spell, ask them what the spell looks like. What does your spirit guardians look like? What does your spiritual weapon look like? You know, remember a lot of what are you, your magic missiles? Do you have a particular take on magic missiles that make them look different? Yeah, they're all like screaming skulls. Ah, cool, right? Ask them to describe what it looks like in the world. And that starts to break them free. But I think the big ones are offering the options and telling them very explicitly that these options exist, making them almost like parts of their character sheet. I think that's a big one. You know, I think that can help. So Frank, hopefully those are a few a few different options for you. Hopefully that helps. Sinan T says, I introduced some NPCs in my last session, but I got lost in my notes and distracted. So I didn't role play them with the same personality and mannerisms that I had written down in my prep. If they make reappearances, would you recommend updating my notes and role-playing them the same way I had previously done in the game so there's consistency for the players or sticking with my initial notes on personality and mannerisms to help them to help keep things straight in my own head? This I like I like this question because it hits on a bigger hits on a bigger topic, which is that things don't things aren't real until you've described them to the players. Right. All of our notes, all of our prep, all the stuff we do, all of our world building in our heads, everything that we do behind the screen before doesn't isn't real. None of it exists until it hits the table. Right. Until we've described it, until the players grabbed onto it, people's names, people's mannerisms, people's appearances, all that stuff is fuzzy. It's a great big ethereal world until the players render it. I like to think about this from like a computer gaming standpoint a little bit, right? That like, if you're, you know, if you're playing, Mine I'm playing Minecraft again, right? The cave, the cave, the new cave expansion is out for Minecraft, which means I'm playing Minecraft again. Minecraft doesn't build the world out ad infinitum. It only builds it out as far as you can see. And if you, and if, if it's blocked stuff, it's not showing the stuff that's underneath until you go down there to look at it, or at least nearby, right? The stuff that's outside of your field of view isn't real until it is. And then when it is, it is, it's real, right? Once it's built, it's real. So 
the the answer to your question is the real one is the one that you had role played, not the one you had written down. And so now that you have role played that character a certain way, it is almost certainly better to keep role playing it the same way you had done at the game than it is to try to go back to your notes again. The notes change, right? All the stuff that's in our notes, all the stuff that's in our prep, all that can change. Ideally, we don't change it once it's hit the table. Once it's hit the table, it's stick, it, it, we try to keep it consistent as where we are. So that answers your question specifically, but I think a bigger a bigger question is, I think recognizing, and you know, I'm just offering my thought on it, right? But my thought, the world doesn't change. The, the, the things only become real when they when they land on the table. They're not real up to that point. Everything is malleable. Everything is flexible. Everything is ethereal goo, just big ethereal ghosty stuff until we bring it in front of the players and then it renders and then it becomes real. And then we want to stay, we want to as much as possible try to keep it, try to keep it consistent. Steven W says, I've come across many cool monsters or creatures with interesting stat blocks only to find out they are good because they are good or lawful aligned. And I probably don't have a reason to use that stat block against the party. How would you run good or lawful aligned monster creatures as enemies when your party isn't necessarily evil? So recall, just like we were saying that not every orc is a bad guy, right? And that, that orcs, you know, we're, we're, we're looking a lot at humanoid NPCs and saying like, oh, we've, we've said they're all bad, but clearly they don't, you know, every one of them, every goblin is a, is a black hearted little thief. I don't think so. Like, Hey, that's pretty problematic. Right. And are like, oh, we're just going to swath this whole race as a bunch of, you know, black hearted little thieves. It's so much more interesting when goblins have a rich tapestry of different personality types, right? Different motivations and stuff like that. Look at Eberron, right? Eberron and, and the, you know, the way Eberron handles races is so much better than, than like, you know, how Forgotten Realms handled it, right? We could do the same thing the other direction, right? Which is not all chromatic, not, not all metallic dragons are good. Just like not all chromatic dragons are bad. I had a ancient red dragon who was a main quest NPC for the characters, Right. Clouth, right? Clouth was a wonderful NPC for my characters. He was an ancient red dragon fighting an ancient blue dragon, right? And he was afraid of the ancient blue because of her power. He didn't want to face her. And so you can just as easily have a metallic dragon be evil. And there, there are ways you could say like, oh, it's a good creature. We're going to make it evil. So like if you're going to use like angels, right? Solars and divas and stuff like that. Well, the easy way there is they fall hard. And if you think about it, I think it actually makes sense that if you, the, the more, the more pure lawful good you are, the, the easier it is for you to fall, right? That if you don't have a lot of flexibility in your views, it's very easy to fall to the dark side. I think easier than if you, if you have flexibility in your views and a solar does not have a lot of flexibility in its views. So boy, I've run dark solars a lot and, and, and fallen solars, fallen divas. Those are very easy to do. Very easy to have a, you know, if you really want a nasty creature, pick a solar and say, it is a fallen angel, right? It is an angel who made a choice and was cast out and is now, you know, walking across the wastelands of hell, hunting down, you know, hunting down mortals with a, with a life or a, with arrows of slaying. Right. So you can easily do that. It, you could also have the corruption. If you think about Taranthoraxis, the, I think it was a copper or bronze dragon from pool of radiance. The pool of radiance is my first exposure to D and D. It was an old computer game. And the main villain was, I think a copper or bronze dragon that had gotten taken over by a demon from this well, from the pool of radiance known as uh, Taranthoraxis. And so you could have like a gold dragon. I, 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 we did it in Fantastic Lairs. In Fantastic Lairs, I have an ancient gold dragon who was possessed by a shard of a spear. He was st stabbed with a an evil weapon and the weapon broke in him and it corrupted him. And now he is an evil dragon, right? So easy to do that kind of thing. But you also don't have to even do that. You could just say it's an evil gold dragon, right? This gold dragon 
you know, many gold dragons are nice people. This one is not right. And you don't have to explain it because people are different, right? And creatures are different. It's a little different when you got like good demons and devils and bad and, and bad angels, right? But generally speaking, you can certainly for, for like the metallic dragons, there's no reason a metallic dragon can't be a bad dragon, right? So, so Steven, hope that answers your question. Devin says, when you try to do world building or give your players an interesting lore or story-based information, how do you present the information as just information and lore for now and not this is where you need to go and what you need to do? I've run homebrew and my players will sometimes interpret lore as information about history of the world as this is where we need to go next, despite my intention that it's more for world building or high in the sky information. The shorter version too late for that when you present information about tier three four bbegs and your players to level five how do you indicate that they would simply die if they tried to confront that particular bbeg bbgs big bad evil guy so there's a couple things one is you can tell them right like tell don't show right players are only understanding half of what we're saying and one of the things you can do is say hey by the way the information you just received you know, you probably don't want to be acting on that right now. You don't, your characters don't feel like you need to be acting on that right now, right? Just tell them, right? Just say that wasn't, it. that's more history and lore, not something you have to deal with right now. You could do that. It's a little heavy handed, right? But you know, if you really are like, hey, this is a problem, then you can, uh, then you can, then you can set that, you know, just, just tell them, just tell them that that information isn't, isn't that useful or isn't, isn't something they're intended to act on right now. The other one is, is there an actual action tied to it? Can they actually do anything with it? Right. If they get, oh, we heard about this nasty demon prince that's out there somewhere. Do they even know where he is? And the answer is like, no one knows where he is. And like, you, you, you feel like you don't have enough information to actually act on this right now is another good one. Like, you know, do the, do you know where he is? Do you know what you'd have to do to get there? Do you know how to defeat him? You could have like, you know, behind the great obsidian door is the, you know, the trapped demon, whatever. And like, oh, let's go investigate and let him. And they're like, yeah, you investigate the obsidian door. You are, con- you're convinced that you don't have the materials you need to open the door, right? It is not a door that's able to open. You think that other artifacts have to be required in order to open the door. So, not having an action, not if they can't do anything with the information, it kind of doesn't matter if they feel like they should or not, because it's like they don't have enough information. And you're like, you don't have enough information to, to move on this. You do. You do. That orc, the orc cave, right, filled with the orcs of Grumont, or the orcs of Grumsh, who are dicks, by the way. There's a nice orcs that live over there in that village, but there's mean orcs over here, and, and they're bad. They're, they're bad people. Then you can then you can, you know, make it clear that there are options to go in one direction. And, and then not have options in the other. That they don't have anything they can do with that. And then they'll get the idea, oh, I don't really have anything I can do with that, right? And that that can work. So so that is definitely one way to treat it. But the other one is just tell them. You know, it's, it's make it really clear to them. You know, the same way that like, there's lots of things that we could tell our players. You know, you are facing a legendary foe. Don't waste your spells on it, right? Like don't let people waste save or suck spells on a legendary monster if it's legendary. Just say it's a legendary monster. Daniel Q says, I love the work you've done for MCDM. Thank you. I have very much enjoyed working with MCDM. I'm doing, I did a little work on Friday on some work I'm doing for MCDM. While we all wait for Flea Mortals, do you have any other third-party books that make monsters with a similar design? The MCDM monsters feel really unique and fun to run. Yeah. So that, so the whole idea of action-oriented monsters is really an MCDM thing. So you're probably going to find it mostly there. It is something that you can homebrew relatively easily. You can think about what the model is for an MCDM style monster of having a way to position yourself having a way to escape and having a way to explode and dropping those in as sort of legendary style actions if you're looking for crunchier 
more tactical monsters with other things you can do check out the work of 2c gaming 2c gaming is a, a game company that i i like very much i've reviewed their products previously on this show and they have a lot of different the, the, the total let's let's check out their take a look at what they've got they have like epic legacy tome of titans they have tyrants and hellions they have oh what is it? they have the total party kill bestiary i think they have a bestiary 2 i don't know that the bestiary 2 is out yet but they they really you know they 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 spend a lot of time thinking about their monsters their monsters are big complicated beasts though they have a lot of things going on in their monsters i have talked a lot about level up 5e's monsters menagerie if you're looking for just a different style of design of monsters ones where the math has been a little is a little tighter than it is in, in the typical wizards of the coast monsters check out the level up 5e monsters menagerie they definitely also have a more tactical bent they do a lot more work with bonus actions and things like that they are they're very good as well it's is it going to be you know are they going to have the same kind of stuff that a MC cdm monster has no but it's definitely a good design i think you can pick it up for 20 dollars on drive through rpg link to that is in the show notes below and of course cobalt press makes tons of monster books and they're really fun monsters i've, I've run a lot of cobalt press monsters over the years and i love them there is toma beast toma beast 2 creature codex and i think a toma beast 3 is coming out pretty soon so there's four monster books from cobalt press all of them excellent books so definitely check out your your third party your third party monster books because there's a lot going on. There. Noah B, when you come up with your ten secrets and clues for your game, how many of them do you normally give the players? If you don't give them the secret that you carry, does it carry over to the next session? I've talked about this before on my previous Lazy DM prep shows. About half. Usually when I put out 10 secrets, I usually end up revealing about half of them. Sometimes it'll be more, sometimes less. And do I carry them over? I carry them over if they still make sense. I don't, I don't maintain a big database of secrets and clues. I just, and sometimes that's at my detriment, but most of the time it's better. I would rather come up with 10 new secrets and clues every session. Now, sometimes when I'm coming up with those 10 new ones, old ones come back up again. I, I'm thinking about it, but usually I like to try to draw it out of my head. Think about today's session, think about what's happened and draw the new secrets and clues based on that fresh perspective every time. The goal is never to reveal all 10 right? This is a, a common misconception is that, oh, I made 10 secrets. I have to reveal them. No, you don't. You don't have to. First of all, recall, and I have a video about this. Secrets and clues serve you, not the other way around. You don't owe secrets and clues anything. You don't owe them anything. You don't owe your prep anything. All you owe is a good game to your players. And you don't even really owe that. You're, you you want to give a good game. You know, when you're, when you're giving yourself out as a dungeon master you want to give a good game to your players you don't need you don't owe your world you don't own your prep you don't owe them anything you don't owe secrets and clues anything which means if you only want to do five you can do five the, the i would say a valuable thing with secrets and clues and the reason why there's 10 there's two good reasons why there's 10 one is coming up with seven is pretty easy coming up with 10 is actually pretty hard you have to draw back into the depths of your imagination to come up with those final three and often those final three are the really good ones right so forcing yourself to come out with a little bit more and just ask yeah what else yeah what else yeah what else yeah what else and like oh man now it's hard oh what if i did this that's where really fun creativity comes in is when you've expended all the easy ones and all that's left are hard ones those hard ones are going to be pretty good the, the other reason is that 10 is usually more than you need for a session it depends on the length of your session if you have eight hour sessions you can probably need more 10 is usually enough that you're not going to run out and you don't want to run out of secrets and clues. You don't want to get to the point where you don't have any new information to give the players because secrets and clues are rewards for 
ex- exploration. They are the things that players are going to get. That's it's almost like loot, right? Instead of loot, they're getting information, and that information is propelling the game forward for them. It's interesting to their characters, interesting to the story. They're think of them like loot, and you you don't want to run out. You don't want to have it where you don't have anything else interesting to tell them. So ten is usually enough that you're going to have some left over. I find in my personal experience, I usually give up about half, which is fine. Right. That that means I have, you know, I, I don't have to worry about the other half, but it means I had enough. I, I had more than enough. I was prepared and I had more than enough. And it got me thinking about the game. And you don't know which ones you're going to reveal. Some of the ones that you reveal might be the lower ones. Right. Maybe may the ones that you came out later. So, yeah. So I, I, I've answered this question before, but I really wanted to spend a little time talking about it because I think it is very important that you don't owe secrets and clues anything. And 10 is a good number because it gives you enough that it will, you probably won't run out during your game. You don't need to carry them over and you certainly don't owe, you, you certainly don't need to reveal all your secrets and clues or you've failed, right? That's totally not true. They are a tool for you to use to help you prep for your game. That is it. And so you, you get to also decide, is 10 enough? Is 10 too many? Right. You get to change, change your mind. Right. Like you, you, you get to decide if they're working, how, where they're working and how they're working for you. I have found the idea of, of secrets, clues, secrets and clues being abstract pieces of information that I can use to improvise discovery during my game has been tremendously valuable, ba- valuable enough that I wrote a whole book because of that. Really return of the lazy dungeon master is written around secrets and clues. So Noah, thank you very much for that question. And for everybody else who has hung out with me today, I hope you enjoyed the show today. It is always a great pleasure to, to, to spend time with you guys and to talk about D&D. If you enjoyed this show and you want to help me out, you can do so by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, joining me on Patreon on the Sly Flourish Patreon, picking up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore, or subscribing to my videos right here on YouTube. You can find links to all of this in the show notes below. To, the, to my friends on Twitch, thank you for hanging out with me this morning. Always a great pleasure. Have a great day. Have a great week and get out there and play some D&D.